You're listening to The Investor Circle, a new podcast series designed to help founders of early stage startups raise their first funds. We'll reveal how new investors should think and make decisions through interviews and insights with successful investors from around the globe. We'll also divulge the who, what, where, why, and how of raising funding within the investor community. So, if you're ready to learn, then here's your host, entrepreneur and advisor, Stuart Noakes. All right. I have great pleasure in welcoming Julia here to the fifth in our series of Investor Circle. Wonderful to have you here, mate. Thank you so much for doing this today. Um, I guess it might be good to start with who are you? And then really interested to talk about everything that are SPACs today. So why don't you start? Julia, who are you? Hi, um, I'm Julia Arie. I am initially from Zimbabwe and I've made it uh, through from living in the UK all the way to living in New York. Um, and I now practice law. I'm a securities attorney. I work at a company called Loeb & Loeb in New York City. And my specialty practice at the moment is um, I, 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 I'm a securities lawyer and we play in capital markets. And what's up front and central is the SPAC market. So we, we do SPACs and de-SPACs, and I'll explain what those are. And obviously, you're a tribe member. You've been a, a founder Friday interview. We've got kind of like your life story out before, or at least part of it anyway. And we met in Portugal, right? So That's right. And we, 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 we did. We had um, Stuart and I and a group of um, the Canopy Group. Um, we started a, an internship program for college students in the U.S. And we, were, we had a very successful run. Um, we, we took uh, students from the United States and parked them in Portugal for the summer in 2019, where they studied at uh, the Nova School of Business and Economics and also had internships um, at a bunch of companies ranging from very early stage startups all the way to developed companies in Portugal. And it was one of the best experiences they ever had. So I want to, you know, again, reiterate how valuable this connection is and this group of people are because it, it manifests itself in so many valuable ways in, in places that you wouldn't even think of. And, um, you know, it, it was an amazing experience. And I have to say, I mean, there's very kind words, but it was an amazing experience on the other side of that as well. And meeting the, the kids that came through, including your own kids that were part of that program and just all the startups that got involved as well. I thought it was amazing. So wonderful to have you here. Now, thank you. what is a SPAG? And how on earth does this stuff work? Let's go with that one. Okay. So SPAC um, is a is an acronym for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. What a SPAC is, it's an IPO of a, a shell company that raises up a particular amount of money um, and puts that money into a trust fund and the management team goes out and looks for an appropriate target to merge with the, with the company and they will um, do a, a, a merger acquisition where the, the SPAC, which is the company that goes public, sits out there and the target is merged into that SPAC, into that entity. Um, it's a, it's, it was a very, very big boom in, the, in 2021 where we had hundreds of SPACs that were out there and we raised billions of dollars. Uh, the average size SPAC in 2021 was about 300 million. Um, and basically what happens is the SPAC gets created 
Um, the it goes through an IPO process, process which is an in, initial public offering. So it gets listed either on NASDAQ stock exchange or the New York stock exchange. And it the money stays in a trust account through a third party. And it sits there and the company goes out, the management of the company goes out and look, tries to find a target to merge into that entity. Um, most SPACs are taken out at $10 a share. They stay at $10 a share for the, the life of the SPAC. And um, actually what, what's been in vogue since 2021, since the market has changed a little bit, we overfund the trust amount. So there is an interest built in there of about 1% to 2%. It actually went as high as 3% during some points where that, that money gets put into the trust and the investors of the SPAC are able to get that back when they sell their shares or they redeem the shares. So while the money is sitting in trust, which is usually about two years, that's the lifespan of the SPAC, the management team of the SPAC go out and look for targets. And the targets range um, have to be a minimum of 80% of value of the amount of money that is in the trust account. So if you have 100 million dollars SPAC, uh, they're looking for a target of at least 80 million in size. Um, we did a lot of transactions. My largest transaction in 2021 and closed in 2022 was a company called Soundhound. Um, that was $133 million SPAC. They merged with a company that ended up with a valuation of $2 billion. They are now trading on the, New York, the on the NASDAQ stock exchange, and that was an amazing uh, experience. Phenomenal. Those are fewer and further between right now. Um, so what's good about this for the startup and what's good about this for the investor? How does how do the equation work? So as an investor, if you're invest, investing at the outset, which is the IPO of the SPAC, um, the underwriters take that out at $10 a share and you, you buy buy shares in the in the entity for $10 a share. You are guaranteed as a, as a stockholder uh, to maintain $10 or act with the built-in interest of up to 1% to 2%. Um, that that money is guaranteed back. So to the extent that you want to stay in the SPAC, you you you're investing in the whatever the target entity is going to be that the SPAC chooses to to merge with. If you don't, at the end of the day, when it comes time to vote on that on that uh, acquisition, you have the right to redeem your shares. So you'll get a minimum of ten dollars a share. But if as the as this money sitting in trust for all of that time, you'll get interest on that. So most people who get in at ten dollars a share. Will end up with 1050, 1030. Some I've seen some as high as 1070 um, per share to get to to redeem your shares to get out. So that's on the on the public market side. On the private side, the targets that they're looking into. This is a much quicker way and a much a more inexpensive way to go public for a company that wants to enter the U.S. markets. This is probably the quickest and the most economical way to get through. There are a lot of SPACs out there that are looking for targets. They're very interested in international targets. And to the to the extent that a company is ready and primed to go into the public market, this is a very good door to go through. The reason being, the entity is already public. There are is already a built-in uh, investor base. Investors are very familiar with the pipe market, the, 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 the SPAC market. And to the extent companies need money on the DSPAC side, which is the term we use for the merger, because you're now not being a, a SPAC anymore, you're now going to be a real company. In the DSPAC process, um, there are a lot of investors that are, have eyes on how good the investment opportunity is for the target that has been chosen, which makes it very interesting for companies that are 
looking to jump from being private and in a certain level to enter the public marketplace, which opens up a lot more doors, especially for financing purposes. So, I mean, these are incredible sums, right? But when you're talking about 100, 200 million SPAC and you're saying 80% of that for evaluation, these companies have to be quite a long way through the startup journey, right? Is this is this only for the best scale-ups or where does it really fit on the so, scale? So that, that will take care of a certain size of the marketplace, which is for a more developed company. And this, again, it, it, it's, it's the reason to look at that level when you're talking about the, the, the larger SPAC entities Um, You're looking at a company that's poised for tremendous growth and also wants to penetrate U.S. markets. It's a very, it's a layup type of situation if you want to go that route. I will say this much. At the time of the business combination, because the, um, the, the public shareholders have the opportunity to get out, which is what I was telling you before about the redemption process, at the time of the business combination or if the process is taking longer and we need to extend the time that the company has to complete a business combination past the two-year mark, we, we can do that, but we need shareholder approval. Once that piece happens, every shareholder that's in the, the public marketplace has the has the right to say, yes, we, we are happy for you to expand or extend, but we want to get out. So they drop out and the the, the, the SPAC that used to have 100 or 200 million in will see a substantial amount of redemptions, which will drop the SPAC down from whatever it was in a couple hundred million down to, um, on average now, 30 to 100 million, which drops the bar down substantially. So in the last year, we've seen a lot of that happening because of two reasons. One, the SPACs, it's been such a saturated marketplace that it's it's been difficult for companies to find the right target, which takes time. And during that process, they run out of time. So they've had to either not finish the target that they were working with, or they've had to extend the life of the SPAC to complete the target, which drops them down um, to a much lower tier, which opens up again a whole new range of territory because now that the 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 bar is lower we're looking at companies that are 20 to 50 million as opposed to north of 80 million Um, so the good news is that in reviewing some of these target candidates the valuations are quite lucrative Um, there's not as much scrutiny as if you were taking a company public right on its own because the matrices are different. So if you were taking a traditional route and you wanted to go public, you know, even if you're a small company at 5, 10, 15 million, um, and that's your target entry price, the scrutiny and valuation levels are a lot higher because you're evaluating the company before the public cutoff. With a SPAC, it's the reverse. The entity is already in place. What you need to do is justify evaluation, and that can be based on a bunch of different criteria, including uh, peers in its class that are already public, and that can help justify the, the higher valuation if you're trying to penetrate that market. And by being a public entity, you can evaluate a company on projected you know, revenues or a performer projection based on criteria that are going to be very different because you're a public entity. So there's a little bit more flexibility 
on valuations, I'm not saying that they should be unjustifiable, no, um, but there's a little bit more flexibility in how you can position the company in order to justify a valuation that would fall into that category. And I mean, I've never been involved in one of these in turn, but I, I kind of see it as a launch pad, right? You come into the American market, you've got this potential extra liquidity, you've got this lovely access point, this credential of being a public company, and now you can trade in the US market in a completely different way. So hopefully then you you skyrocket, right? You really go go somewhere. Right. So some of the things to consider when doing, well, this is to be considered for any company that's looking for institutional investment or going public or trying to be part of a SPAC, um, make sure your your accounting is up to snuff because <laughs> what, what ends up happening is we end up seeing a, a fantastic target, but they don't have their accounting done um, with the international accounting standards. Um, if you're coming into the US market, you have to come up to gap standards. We also do a lot of SPACs that are offshore SPACs. So um, Virgin Islands or Cayman entities, if you want to stay offshore, that's still fine. You can still list on an American exchange and continue as a European or a non-American entity um, and merge with a SPAC that is Cayman or Virgin Islands um, domiciled. Uh, if you wanted to go with the Delaware SPAC, we can re-domicile to Cayman or any other jurisdiction of your choice um, and maintain that possibility as well, which gives you a little bit more flexibility. But again, some of the Achilles heel is uh, get your accounting stuff in order. It's, it, it helps a lot. Okay. Okay. So for people who don't know you, who have not seen the Founder Friday or anything, you know, can you give a bit of a background about how you've got into this kind of stuff? What makes you awesome at this stuff? Um, not about awesome at it, but uh, it, it's, um, it's a very specific type of practice. Um, I actually started my practice, uh, gosh, 30 years ago um, at a big law firm in New York, New York City and uh, a firm called Kelly, Dry and Warren. We did a lot of this type of um, public market uh, offerings in those days. And in those days, they were just called blank check companies and they were not very in vogue. And most of them were done over the counter or what used to be called the NASDAQ small cap market. Fast forward 30 years, um, I get a call one day that the firm um, that I'm at now, Loeb and Loeb, needed help. And um, so I got a phone call and they said, Do you, you know, you have this experience. Would you consider coming back? And I said, Hell no. <laughs> no, I left this for a reason. It's, you know, and then they said, Well, just think about it. So I did. And I said, Oh, fine. You know, it's it's a weird thing that I would get a call out of the blue. And so um, I called the, called Loeb and I said, okay, um, I just want to let you know I'm a little rusty on this stuff. And they said, rusty's okay. Um, we need help because they, there were so many SPACs going on. And so I jumped back in and ironically, nothing has changed in 30 years. <laughs> uh, they've called, they have some things of different names, but it is still a very specialized uh, practice of law. It's not for the faint of heart. It's uh, during crunch time. Hours can be long. Um, the, the components are extremely, can be extremely sophisticated, but they do follow a pattern. So they do repeat. They do look like, look the same, but I will say this much. It is it's a lot of fun. Um, the deal terms can be extremely challenging because we have to be creative in making things work as market conditions change on a daily basis. Um, but we get them done and it's 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 fantastic. And I will say from a networking perspective, I have 
really broadened my my network and my spectrum as to the investors I'm dealing with, the lawyers all over the world, um, entrepreneurs, because they're the ones that are um, advisors to these companies. They're the ones that are sourcing these companies. They are, um, you know, getting into the, the capital markets uh, arena through this door. Um, and it's it's just been fantastic. It's, it's, it's really terrific. I, I love it. And what did, what did you study a, a university or anything to get into this field in the first place? Um, I went to, you know, I actually went to rugby school in, in, in England and I was supposed to go to the University of Edinburgh, but I met some students on the tube that were lost in London and uh, <laughs> they were US students and they um, said to me, you know, can, can you help me get to where I need to go? And um, I became really good friends with them. The next thing I knew, I dropped everything in the UK and off I went to the into the States and went to Syracuse University and then law school in the city. And um, when I graduated, I went to the Kelly Dry and uh, started this practice. And it, again, it's a, it was a very specialized type of law. And I, that's what I did. And I, and I loved it then and I love it now. So it's all thanks to the London Tube. I love it. It is. You never know. It's, it's a sliding door. You never know what's going to, what, what can, can change your life. And um, at the end of the day, um, something that has unknowns, and this is a, a life lesson that I've learned, um, and I live by it, is don't limit yourself by what you think. Open yourself to the possibilities, and uh, you never know what that's going to be. And if you have that mindset, there's this, this sky's the limit. There's there's no there's no limits as to what you can do. So don't stop by thinking. Just you know open your mind and open your your options and it's 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 an amazing thing so you're basically saying next time on london tube don't look down <laughs> just look up and meet some people right because you never can tell where you're gonna you end up. never can tell you never can tell so with your wealth of experience as an entrepreneur as a lawyer as an investor and through all this stuff i wonder if you could finish this out today by just giving your best advice for a first-time founder watching this today who's maybe going to raise their first funds like what would you say to them Think big and dream big because if you don't do that, then you don't have a light shining on a runway that's going to be something you should be able to take off on one day. So um, don't be limited by thinking you have to, you know, don't go in a certain direction. I will say, but in doing that, take one step at a time and put one foot in front of the, the other in sequence because, um, don't try to jump off a cliff, take the stairs down. There's a process to get to where you want to go. So, you know, um, be open-minded and, and, and as big as you can think as, as you can be, but pros, pro, you know, proceed towards that goal carefully and mindfully use resources everywhere. Ask lawyers questions. You're going to need it. They, even if you don't think you need them, and accounting questions, even if you don't think you need them yet, you actually do because sometimes they will tell you what you need to look for and set some of the milestones that you're going to need to cross in order to get to where you're going. And it might sound expensive. It might sound um, more than I need right now, but that's okay. 
it's better to have these things mapped out for you because it'll make your journey a little bit more organized and a little bit more productive. And as you hit them, you'll suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I've done A, B, and C, and that's not on my my to-do list anymore. And so it's a a bit more of an organized approach and that I would bear those things in mind. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for doing this today. It is wonderful to know you and it's wonderful to have this uh, kind of captured today because you brought something really special to this series. Uh, nobody else that, that we're going to interview is going to talk about SPACs and stuff. And you've just given a, a whole different perspective to the series. So thank you so much for making the time for us today. It's my pleasure. And for those of you who would like to be, uh, you know, to think that you're too small or you're not able, you never know. There's a, there's an appetite out there. And even if it may not be the SPAC acquisition, um, once a SPAC is done one, there's many, many, many more. So they, they like to keep going. So keep that in mind. Thanks, Julia. Thanks for listening to The Investor Circle. We hope you learned something today. If you'd like more information or want to book a call in discussion, you can reach Stuart at linktree forward slash canopy underscore in residence or on Twitter at Vision for 2020. Be sure to tune in next time for more valuable investor tips and please tell a friend.